This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Scott. Hey, we're going to go back in time today. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> unclear how far we're going back, though, right? That's right. At least a thousand <laughs> and so years. That's right. Yeah, we we read the Odyssey together, which was one heck of a lot of fun. About three thousand years ago or so. Yeah, <laughs> and now we're leaving uh, the Mediterranean, heading north with the olives and the and the heat, <laughs> and we're going to the north where That's it's freezing tight. cold and oh. people are grim, and they drink a lot of mead. They drink a lot of mead. Yeah, um, I, I was listening to a lecture. So we're talking about Beowulf today, mm-hmm. um, but I, I was listening to a lecture on, um, it was one of the recorded books, Modern Scholar series by this guy named Timothy uh, Shutt, Odyssey of the West Part 3, Oh, nice. that's uh, what it's called, yeah, and he said, um, we move from the land of wine and olives and grain and sheep and goats to the land of beer and milk and cheese and horses. And because in his lecture series, he moved from the Odyssey to Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was interesting. And then he went on to explain the contact. Um, I, I wasn't clear. Surely there must be some writing somewhere from someone in the Mediterranean saying what they think of these North people. Oh, they were, the North people were down in the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway... The general consensus, uh, according to this guy, is that they were not very well liked. Because <laughs> I know, I mean, they were invading and stuff, right? But um, one, one of the interesting things that he said was, you know, well, they were considered stupid and and large. I mean, they were very big. And um, an interesting thing that he said was they are embarrassingly subservient to their women. Right, yeah. Oh, that yeah. Interestingly, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a there, definitely a clash of cultures, and mm-hmm. uh, there's lots of comparisons to be made between the Odyssey and uh, Beowulf as well. And, um, but yeah, so in the Mediterranean, um, we do get contact with the so the Viking folk, right? The um, the Vikings even had a name for their Constantinople. It was Miklagard, hmm. and in the city of uh, Constantinople, the elite guard, the Varingian guard, was all Northmen. Um, they had all they all come down there to work as basically mercenaries for the the Christian kings down there, and eventually they settle in and become, you know, uh, sort of a. They don't they don't come from you know Norway and Sweden and Denmark and. Geatland and all the other places mm-hmm. that they're from, uh, they just they they just you know their father was from Geatland or their father was from Norway or whatever, but it it is it is interesting that we we sort of think of them as separate realms, but they're actually not physically that far apart. And those Vikings were when they weren't raiding, were trading with everybody. Um, that's where they got all those fancy uh, clothes and rings and gold and. Uh, when they were stealing it, they were mostly <laughs> trading it. And and the other thing to remember is that all of Russia was conquered, well, all of Western Russia, anyways, was, was conquered by Northmen. And the Rus, the name actually comes from 
from a, a northern conqueror. So, hmm. uh, you know, there is a connection between that northern sea and the, uh, and the Black Sea, and that's that those Russians were down there fording rivers with their ships and, and uh, basically going everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, so when, when you say that the Northmen had their own word for Constantinople, did they give it that name after conquering it? I mean, was there... Did they ever take that city? Uh, they didn't conquer it. They, well, in a way they did. No, they, they never invaded that city. Um, mm-hmm. and, unless, you know, it, I mean, it, it gets kind of funny because what happens is, is after a short period of time, they're no longer Vikings, right? So the, the Vikings invade northern France. They become Normans. Uh, basically Vikings with, who speak French. And then they invade England, uh, but England would ha- had already been previously invaded by other, you know, Germanic tribes, right? So mm. uh, they're all basically coming from the same area in waves. And eventually, uh, you know, you get the Crusades, and, and they do go down there, and they do sack uh, Byzantium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the sacking of Byzantium is not like... It's not like a Viking mm. conquest. And, and Byzantium, just to make sure Same that I'm content. clear, Byzantium is kind of like post-Rome, right? Uh, Isn't uh, it the Roman uh, Empire kind of post-Empire is Byzantium? Byzantine Empire, sure. Okay. It's basically the Eastern Roman Empire. There, there's arguments to be made that the Roman Empire uh, never fell in at least some <laughs> respects. Uh, we still got the Holy Roman Empire, right, in, uh-huh. in a certain yeah. respect. There's the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Church, and, and those um, <laughs> there's arguments to be made that they're still around, that they never did fall in the way that we think they did. But they, certainly the Western Emperor was gone by, by 1000 AD, right? Right, right. So this uh, Beowulf is somewhere between 700 and 1000? Uh, between 500 and 1000 is probably, okay. uh, and probably much earlier than that. So, uh, the, one of the books I was reading... Um, is a very interesting book called uh, the Beowulf, a dual language edition uh, by Howell D. Chickering Jr. And it has a lot of commentary on on how the, the how we know what we know about Beowulf. And there was basically there was one document um, that was half burned in a uh, in a library fire. In yeah, the 1600s, yeah. uh, 1700s, um, and it had been copied shortly after that fire, I think, and then subsequently it got in worse condition. It was rebound, and the copyist didn't know Anglo-Saxon, and there's a long, convoluted story. Yeah, and then didn't they uh, uh, not illuminate it? But in order to try to preserve it, didn't they put it in these these paper frames? Could be and things, and they they covered up some letters when they did that as well. Yeah, there's some. So there's, some there's a lot of shining lights through it and trying to determine, yeah. you know. So there's some missing. There's actually missing letters in most translations. Like there, mm-hmm. it says somebody something. <laughs> you know, it's like blankety blanks. Yeah, yeah. The king of the blankety so, blanks did the blankety blank thing. Yeah, I I kind of looked at two versions. I had um, a version, a recent one, um, translated by Seamus Haney. And he also has an audiobook that he reads um, that is abridged, 
Um, you know, he skips lines here and there. Um, you and I guessed that it was for length reasons. Maybe they broadcast it on the radio. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but the, the book is complete. So that's the one that I looked at. And then I also, do you remember Michael D.C. Drought? Mm-hmm. Um, he has a couple of really excellent lecture series from Modern Scholar. Um, he has more than just two, but my two favorite. He has one on science fiction and one on fantasy. And he published, I think it's available on his website, a version of Beowulf read in Old English. And it's neat to hear. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I didn't, it's I didn't listen to the entire thing. Yeah, because it's impossible for me to, uh, it's impossible for me to understand any of it. You know, every now and then, you know, when he says that was a good king, you know, I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, there are in lines that do stand yeah. out. And, and you know, a lot of the the, it sounds almost like somebody with a very thick, you know, Scottish accent or something. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does, and it's neat to listen to. So he's got the whole thing on a CD that you can uh, buy over there. And uh, it also includes a lecture at the beginning, which was pretty much from a linguistic standpoint and a document standpoint. He didn't spend a lot of time in the lecture talking about the history, which is what we're doing. But he he did explain, um, like you just did, how we had one copy of this thing. And And, one uh, of the other things that was shocking was that uh, one of the reasons we think that there might not have been more copies is because it wasn't particularly a popular work. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, sure it could be. Why? Why couldn't that be so? Um, well, it's yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, were, were the northern people? Did they write a lot? Because you know, surely they had a lot of vellum, they right? <laughs> they had runes, but um, and mean, uh, the the Icelandic sagas. You know, I don't know how yeah. many of them there are, but. But, you know, going back to, you know, the difference between the, the Greeks and, or even the Romans and the Greeks and the, and the, uh, the Northerners, those Scandians, mm-hmm. the Scandian lands, um, there is a, a sort of a cultural difference, you know, and, and it isn't just about how they let the women sort of tell them what to do a little bit, <laughs> at mm-hmm. least compared to, uh, to the, um, <laughs> the, the Greeks who had them locked up in their, Houses not allowed out. Um, the uh, those Northerners they were much more into meat halls than they were into uh, uh, philo- philosophical schools. You know. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a reason they were the the guardsmen and not the uh, imported um, tutors for their you know the prince <laughs> princelings. You know. Mm-hmm. And even in Beowulf, which is a uh, you know. A great, great story. Even in Beowulf, it's not scholarship. It's not sort of uh, a cleverness and and deep philosophical um, thinking that's going on here. This is action. This is uh-huh. bragging. This is skiving. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, you know. Like in in the Odyssey, we hear all about this. Uh, um, Xenia, you know the, mm-hmm. the hospitality That's and stuff. Not in, in here, in the in, yeah, in in Beowulf, what's described is, hey, whoever's the toughest gets to be in charge of these loyal followers, and they sit around and they drink, and he gives out wealth. Yeah, and and um, and, and that's so like their reward for following this guy. So they want to follow the guy 
who's the toughest and and, I, and I'm sure I, I don't know how much loyalty there was but if you wanted to challenge this guy you could if you wanted to be in charge of this little group but but it doesn't seem that there was you know a, a lot of I guess loyalty is the word that I'm looking for. Um, it, it seems like, you know, for someone to leave the clan wouldn't have, you know, and I called it a clan. They didn't call it a clan, did they? But it, it just seemed like a loose collective of people. Um, they weren't all related or anything. It's just that they, they, you know, the thanes that this guy had around him were people that they all just wanted to hang out together, it seemed like. And then um, surely there were other warlords all over the place and, this person could join any group he wanted. There's a lot, of, a lot of nice ways of approaching, you know, how to understand these people. I, one, one of the ways to look at it is they're Klingons, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, Klingons are Yeah, and I, I was going to mention that. It, yeah, the Klingons are definitely based on, on these people. It's clear after you read it. The other thing that leapt to mind was the 13th warrior. Well, that, how, that is Beowulf, right? That's, that's yeah, it really was. I was, I, was really, I was really impressed with... Uh, you know, I really like that movie. First of all, before I, I, I even read Beowulf, and now that I've read Beowulf, I can, I can see where Michael Crichton got a lot of the stuff. Uh, I think I'd like to read Eaters of the Dead, I think um, which is the, mean. yeah, which is a novel that uh, was adapted into the Thirteenth Warrior. Um, but it was interesting how he he made that um, society work, just like Beowulf. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. you know the other the other way of approaching it in a more modern, less um, less uh, science fiction vein would be to think of the way biker gangs work. Right, hmm. biker gangs yeah. are not based on uh, family affiliation necessarily. You don't. It, it's not that your father was in the biker gang that gets you in the biker gang. It's the fact that you like riding hogs, <laughs> that you yeah. Yeah. you uh, yeah. like to party. Um, you're a shit kicker, you know, all the, all the things that, you know, get you, uh, in there and make you sort of a part of the group. And there isn't a loyalty based on uh, family necessarily, but brotherhood is more like mm -hmm. what it's about. Right, right. Yeah, that's a well put. And if you look at the relationship between Rothgar and, um, Beowulf, they're not family. They are not even distantly related, as far as I can see, on the family trees. What it yeah. does is his father, uh, Beowulf's father, and, and Rothgar's father uh, used to party together. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a reputation. Yeah, and yeah. You know, so and your and your reputation is that uh, I mean, if your father, you know, and that's an interesting aspect of this um, because his father died in some battle. Yeah. That's right. right? The and and uh, and there was a couple of lines in the Beowulf where it said, "And Beowulf had no regard for his own life, or he wasn't concerned at all about dying." And um, isn't this incredibly awesome? Okay. Superman, <laughs> right? So eventually, you know, somebody does something stupid enough to where, you know, they throw themselves in a situation where they die, and they get to it's glorious, and, and that reputation falls to his family. Yeah, it's uh, your father. Your father can lend you some some cred, but you also have to rely on your own stuff. And, mm -hmm. and uh, notice, it isn't you know the father's father's father. It's not a. We haven't got a dynasty. Although there is some mention of dynasty, it is uh, limited. So uh, when the way the book starts, um, uh, 
the skilled of the skiffling, right? This this yep. early phrase. This is like the house of basically Denmark. The, it's like an old family line of kings, and mm. that goes to everybody of that area. Right? They're all of that, and so there's mm-hmm. pride of of kingdom, but there's also the personal pride of your r- personal reputation, and that goes back to. Um, something I actually picked out, and I, I want to use as an example, um, that I found in uh, the, the uh, Howell D. Chickering Jr. book. Um, and I want to read this little bit to you. Uh, this one here, Unferth. Mm-hmm. So, you remember Unferth is the... Mm-hmm. the uh, <laughs> There's a whole other thing I want to get to, and he is the worm tongue <laughs> yeah. to uh, Rothgar, right? Right. He's the advisor to Rothgar, and he is sitting uh, sitting in the mead hall at uh, Her- Herat with uh, Rothgar and uh, all his dudes when Beowulf comes in. This is the third time Beowulf, I think, or the third or second time he's been challenged as he's entered the, the Scandian land of Denmark. Um, and he says, uh, so this is, this is from uh, lines 499 through 528 and later. Um, Unferth. In the Odyssey book uh, 8, Odysseus refuses to join the games of the Phaeacians, and a courtier, Euralius, deliberately insults him, saying that he is no athlete. Odysseus replies quite rudely, throws the discus a greater distance than anyone else, then boasts of his prowess and tells of his past life. His host, King Alconius, accepts his angry behavior and reproves Euralius, who then plays up and gives Odysseus a sword. This is a parallel to Unferth's initial quarrelsomeness to Beowulf's reply and its reception by Rothgar, and to Unferth's friendly gift of the sword, Hrunting. When Beowulf is about to dive into the mirror, that's to go kill uh, um, uh, Grendel's mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rude challenge by a retainer is a motif of heroic poetry that serves that solves the literary problem of demonstrating the disruptive, self-assertive side of the hero's character, while at the same time showing the, his courtesy and restraint. For similar testing scenes, and this quotes are on testing. In the Aeneid and the Old Norse literature, see Caber, page 148. One would be tempted to say, oh, the, you know, the composer of Beowulf was well familiar with the Odyssey, uh, uh, given that you know, these two scenes are so parallel. You know, the retainer challenges the, the guy, and, and he's rebuked by the king and gives the hero the sword. Um, and mm-hmm. in a way, they both act the same way. They're very braggy, you know. Um, yeah. But the the bragginess of of Odysseus is interestingly different than the bragginess of uh, of Beowulf, because Beowulf um, takes it as a challenge and tells a tall tale of himself. Right, he's the he's in a swimming contest with two other youths, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and uh, he killed six or nine sea monsters. Right, <laughs> um, in this five day 
swimming contest, like yeah, continuously yeah. swimming, right? So, uh, what does Odysseus do? He tells an outrageous lie. <laughs> and so, that is an interesting parallel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, uh, I want to mention the the movie uh, version that uh, Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery scripted. Yeah, I watched that this week as well. I I think first time I'd ever seen. Oh, really? It. Okay. Well, yep. I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. I I much appreciated it now. I think you know the the visual effects sometimes leave something to be desired, but. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that, those those Zemeckis movies that you know that method of animation is really kind of disturbing. Well, I think <laughs> it, it's just there's just something off about it, and then it, it usually within about ten or fifteen minutes I forget about it and I'm able to start enjoying it. I, I when, you know, it's the same way with Polar Express and all that stuff. It's just when people it's oddly disconcerting. Sorry, keep interrupting. Go ahead. When people stick out their tongues, it doesn't look real. You know, yeah. they do that a lot in this movie. I think if you disregard the the way, you know, some people don't look like they look like animated corpses in a way. If, exactly. Oh, That's exactly what they look you like. Kind of yeah. for that. Um, uh-huh. The way the film is composed is amazing. There's all these shots where it pulls in from a million yards away and pulls out from a million yards away and follows an eagle and follows a wave and follows, all, you know, like... There's, it's a, it's a very innovative use of, of of filming technology to show something. But if we even sweep away the entire um, visual elements, the script is fantastic and the voice acting is is excellent. Uh, you, yeah, you could certainly <clears throat> back day I would record uh, uh, you know episodes of uh, Babylon Five and put them on cassette tape. Just to listen mm-hmm. to them because the, the the scripts are so good and the sound is so good. Um, mm-hmm. The same thing is true is that the plot in this is very well crafted. The sound design is great, but more importantly, there's actually some technical improvements in some of the things that happen that can't happen in the way we. It, uh, not maybe it's wrong to say improvements, but um, in the adaptation, it's very faithful in many ways, but also takes liberties that the book doesn't and sure the, yeah the, so we, we can we can mention you know the the structure of the the poem is really three pieces right uh, i want to I hit this point though okay go ahead there's um, mm-hmm. in that scene where beowulf is bragging about his adventure right uh-huh. uh, yeah see and how this is really a sign of him not being uh a loser uh in a in a swim race but in fact him being an awesome Hero, one of his uh, who's, who's his main dude. I can't remember. Oh, starts with a W. I can't remember. Anyways, his mm-hmm. one of his his men um, has an aside after after uh, Unfirth says, um, "How many how many sea monsters did you kill? Was it twenty <laughs> one?" <laughs> and Beowulf says nine. It's like reprovingly. It's you, you're trying to inflate my numbers, and then. Uh, the the companion to Beowulf says, last time it was only three. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you get inflation. <laughs> right, right. Proves and, you know, shows the, the power. The thing is, is, he is a hero, right? Mm-hmm. Badass. You know, but the guy who is a hero and badass is competing with a whole, whole bunch of other heroes and badasses. And so... You've got to cheat a little, 
right? <laughs> that you've got to inflate your awesomeness a little. Yeah. Uh-huh. Your own story because that's the the goal is to be talked about and to be loved and to be, to be well respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, right, right. <clears throat> yeah, and they did some interesting things in that script as well um, that made it a different story. I mean, it, it was still Beowulf, but they added some things that those are kind of retold it. I think they're excellent. They're like the excellent kind of um, insights that you might have in a great podcast with Eric or something like that. Where you sure, sure, yeah. Well, what if this is going? What's really going on there? And I mean, the, mm-hmm. the fact is, is we do not see. You know, whenever Beowulf confronts, uh, when he confronts Grendel's mother, mm-hmm. you do not see anyone else go with him. He goes in alone. Right. What he did down in the cave, um, you know, nine hours underwater or whatever it was, uh, uh-huh. it's not uh, going to be reported by extra witnesses. This is not the kind of testimony we can say is historical, right? Sure, sure. And- so, yeah, so let, let's say real fast what what the poem says. Right. Or what the, the, the structure of the poem is, is three pieces. One is the... Um, Challenge and defeat of Grendel, mm-hmm. and then the attack, and then defeat of Grendel's mom, mm-hmm. and then they leave that place. And fifty years later, he fights a dragon. He's the king of the Geats, uh, right? Yeah. So he he leaves that place and he, he goes back to where they came from because they they really liked it there. <laughs> At one point he says, it's time for us to go back because it's, it was awesome. And, uh, but you guys have been great. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he goes back there and then he ends up having to fight, uh, is the last fight of his life, a dragon. He dies in the process of defeating it. Right, right. So then in the movie, um, what Neil Gaiman did, Neil Gaiman had a co-writer, I can't remember his name. Dr. Avery. Okay. Um, he said, okay, Grendel was the son of Hrothgar. Yeah. With Grendel's mom, of course, mm. and who seduced him, right? Yep. And then Beowulf doesn't ever defeat his mom. He gets seduced himself. Mm-hmm. And the result of that union is the dragon. And it's a beautiful symmetry because... It is, yeah. In the original text, um, it's not explained why Grendel is harassing Hrothgar's hall. It it just says he's a monster, and he has a grudge against Hrothgar's hall. But it doesn't say, you know, uh, because they stole my money. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's something about a horde. You know, all all these guys are um, monsters, have hordes. Like yep. a horde of gold, a horde of jewels, and these these Viking guys not very sophisticated. They love their gold, they love their jewelry, they love their their uh, pretty finery. But yeah. they they see that you know you get it and you give it out. You get it and you give it. You give it and you wear it. Yeah, like even um, late late in the uh, the. After Grendel's mom has been "quote unquote" defeated, the um, the prize that he's given is a gold collar. And I was thinking, like, well, why would you want a gold collar? Wouldn't that be heavy? Well, it's just a 
it's just a, a ostentatious showing of how awesome you are. You know, look, I won this prize in a battle with with a, mm. a demon. A story to tell while you're drinking mead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, there's not a lot, a high level of sophistication. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there were there was a section in there where he gave something to somebody who did something for him, mm. and it was late in the thing. Um, after the dragon, I believe he gave somebody this collar, right? Yep. And then, and then the line went something like, "And now that guy had an incredible story and was given a place of honor, just because he was given this gift. <laughs> he had a place of honor at the in the mead hall, mm-hmm. you know, so because he had an awesome story to tell. There's a he, you know, yeah. a, it's a not a, a big book, but there's a lot going on in it and. In the, yeah, the movie yeah. version, that is also shown briefly when uh, in a in a scene that I believe is not in the book. Uh, when we are introduced to old Beowulf, he's fighting uh, some Frisians on the beach who are invading, and yeah. they're saying, "Why are they invading? They've got their own stuff." Um, he says, "Well, they they want a story to tell, my lord." Right? He says, "Okay." He goes down to the beach, and one Frisian's about to be executed, and uh, he says, you want to kill me? Kill me. And the guy can't kill him for whatever reason. And and instead of having him killed, he says, give that man a gold coin and send him on away. Now he has a story to tell. Right? Mm-hmm. He yeah. confronted Beowulf and, and was spared. Um, <laughs> it's a the story is at the primacy. And in the movie, they do a good job of saying, you know, that's the only purpose for doing any of this is so that people will remember you in a thousand years. Uh, and that's actually how he is seduced, right? Um, it's not just that she's beautiful, because in a way she's also disgusting. She's a, a, some sort of sea, sea monster, sea creature, and she, she bears very hideous children. Yeah, she's got tentacles. She, yes, yeah, she's, uh, she's either, you know, she's a shapeshifter of some kind. Mm-hmm. She does have a, a tentacle that I thought it was. It, it was. It, I think the way they did that was amazingly well done. Yeah, well, amazingly yeah. well thought through, because she is not a complete character in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't even have a name, and that's not great. But there is a. Did you uh, pick up on the the backstory? Did you read anything about about where these evil creatures came from? Because that's did I interesting. did I read any? I mean, I read the poem. Is it in there? Yeah, well, it's kind of mentioned. Um, there, uh-huh. the spawn of Cain. Yes, right. I, I highlighted some of that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and so yeah, in fact, I have one right here. It says Grendel was the name of this grim demon haunting the marches, marauding round the heath and desolate fens. He had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan. Right. Whom the creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. Right. So this then also talks about how, um, you know, the period of this, 600 AD, they're not mm-hmm. Christians yet. They're. A- yeah, that, that was an interesting aspect to that, the whole thing, because they mention, you know, in the movie, I remember somebody said, should we pray to Christ Jesus, right. this new God, you know, and he said, no. Let's, uh, you know, he says the time for praying is through or whatever. Something like that is what he said. But, then, but it, and th- right? throughout, I'm sorry, what? But then 50 years later, uh-huh. it's, yeah. it's taken hold, right? Right, right. And throughout this poem, I mean, uh, Christian Christianity is mentioned all the time. Absolutely. 
But it, it still, it, it doesn't seem to have sunk in as a philosophy. Oh, absolutely not. What, what yeah. I think, what I think we're, you know, if we're looking at it as a period piece, it's a poem uh, about people who are not Christians, uh, mm-hmm. written by people who are. And yeah. and uh, one of the one of the arguments that people make about what, where this even came from is that it was written down by a a monk of some kind, right? Because those mm-hmm. are the people who had writing, um, and it, it is odd too because it's about a it's about uh, a Swede a southern Swedish dude uh, doing something in Denmark and in Sweden, written by somebody in uh, England. England, right? That's that's the understanding that I had was. Yeah, by an English person uh, about a Danish person. Right. Yeah. So it's it's it, it's interesting that you know we don't know enough about the backstory. We know we probably know more about the Iliad and the Odyssey um, in a way because they were so pervasive within the culture. Whereas mm-hmm. it's not you know other we have lots of other works that refer to. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, events in there, and you know stories that go with it. But there's almost no uh, external. Uh, yeah, is there? Is there any at all? There's very little. Um, so yeah. there's his, some of the characters are historical kings, right? Beowulf was a king of Geatland, but is that that's for sure? So he was historical. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and. Because I remember that, you know, King Arthur, I used to have a book called uh, yeah, that's a- The Real King Arthur or something like that, um, where they, they do believe that King Arthur was historical. Yeah, uh, but I think we have even less documentation on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's Arthur, what the book said. Arthur. It was very tenuous, but they think that maybe... Yeah, we've got this period yeah. after the Roman, mm-hmm. that, you know, the Roman chaos. Probably wasn't a king, he's probably more a chief. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, Camelot is not what you think it is. <laughs> it's all with some rocks on it. Right, right. But uh, yeah, so there, there is some tenuous documentation that these are historical characters in the same way that you know there is an island uh, called Ithaca, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Odysseus may have lived there. <laughs> at some point, right, right. The the fact that Ithaca exists and Geatland exists is about basically yeah. what we've got. Sure, sure. So yeah, so there's uh, lines. You know, I just highlighted a few. Sure. Uh, the truth is clear. Almighty God rules over mankind and always has. So there's a kind of a Christianity reference, and then. Um, so is the version you've got in verse? Yes. Give us a couple lines so we can we can hear. Um, let's see. Hold on a second. Um, yeah, let me just get to the very beginning of it here. Oh, that's a good idea. Because <clears throat> that's probably a good place to start. Well, you know, one of the most poetic passages, though. Let me see if I've got that. I uh, highlighted it just... Here we go. Well, yeah, th- this is an interesting spot here. Um, okay, let me just open that. Launch. Okay, Beowulf's ancient iron-gray sword let him down in the fight. 
It was never his fortune to be helped in combat by the cutting edge of weapons made of iron. He, when he wielded a sword, no matter how bloodied and hard-edged the blade, his hand was too strong. The stroke he dealt, I have heard, would ruin it. He could reap no advantage. And that's like a stanza. Yeah. And, um, you know, I read just a little bit of Tolkien's book uh, or, or essay mm. that made such a splash about Beowulf. You know, everybody refers to it. Um, that I was looking at. And he said, you know, everybody was saying, well, it doesn't have any rhyme or meter or anything like that. And, it, and he was saying that it's got kind of a balance of uh, weight of syllables mm. kind of around a central point. Um, if I understood what he said correctly, and I didn't read that whole essay, but he was just saying it, it is poetic. It's got this balance to it. Um, of syllables. I wanted to I wanted to start the podcast with this. I was saying, Scott, this is this is poetry, right? <laughs> and you're going to say, yeah. And then uh-huh. and I said, what kind of poetry is it? And you say, epic. Epic. <laughs> it's, epic. <laughs> it's epic. In every sense of the word, it's epic poetry. Um, uh-huh. uh, the the version I listened to uh, from Tantor, read by mm-hmm. Rosalind Landor, is also the same version that's available on LibriVox, except uh, they've got multiple narrators on, on the LibriVox version. And um, the way it's done, it's done with um, alliteration and with uh, there's, there's no rhyming. It's uh, or if there is, it's not consistent. It's alliteration and assonance, and um, it's it's beautiful sounding. But it's kind of hard to follow, and so I was, you know, switching between many different texts, um, listening, reading, um, and looking at the two other translations that I had. But I've got the the first passages here of several, uh, uh, three different copies. So I'd like to read just the intros to uh, the. So which line are you going to be? I'm going to start right at line one. Okay. Uh, which is a prelude. Before the, this is about the House of Rothgar um, okay. and how it came to be. So uh, let's start with the uh, Chickering uh, translation. Uh, Listen, we have heard of the glory of the Spearanes in the old days. The king of tribes, how noble princes showed great courage. Often, skilled skeffing seized mead benches from the enemy troops. From many a clan he terrified warriors, even though first he was found a waif, helpless. So, um, a waif, right? That's one of the images. Mead benches, one of the images. Um, and the skilled scaffoldings are going to be repeated in all of them. Um, it's kind of easier to understand that part. But now listen to the, the uh, Gomer translation, which is the one that's uh, in the audiobook. Lo, instead of listen, praise of the prowess of people kings, of spear-armed Danes in days long sped. We have heard, and what honor the athelings won, oft skilled skeffing from squadron foes, from many a tribe the mead benched tore, awing the earls. Hmm. Awing the earls instead of, uh, 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 what is it, uh, terrifying the warriors. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the final line here. Since erst he lay friendless 
friendless, a foundling, fate repaid him, for he waxed under Welkin in wealth he throve, till before him the folk, both far and near, whose house by the whale path heard his mandate, gave him gifts, a good king he. <laughs> um, yeah. The whale path is something, uh, I, I remember that Brian uh, mentioned the whale road. That was mm. one of the things that had me saying, I want to read Beowulf, that sounds really cool. So mm. I've got one more version here, and this is uh, by Kevin Crossley Holland. Um, a bit different. Listen, the fame of the Danish kings in days gone by, the daring feats worked by those heroes are well known to us. Skilled scaffling often deprived his enemies, many tribes of men, of their mead benches. He terrified his foes, yet he, as a boy, had been found a waif. Fate made amends for that. He prospered under heaven, won praise and honor, until the men of the neighbor, every neighboring tribe across the whale's way were obliged to obey him and pay him tribute. He was a noble king. It's different, and the feeling yeah. is different. And I've got, let me read the one Please. I've got here. Okay, so this is uh, the Seamus Haney version. So, the spear Danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them, had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. There was Sheaf, or Shield Sheafson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. This terror of the hall troops had come far. A foundling to start with, he would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. In the end, each clan on the outlying coasts beyond the whale road had to yield to him and begin to pay tribute. That was one good king. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that each pick of a word gives a different feeling, right? Mm -hmm, and yeah. when you combine the words together... It gives you a different feeling. So the skill of the scaffling, that's one of the, uh, 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 of scaffing. That's one of the problems is, is it's, there's so much context that we don't have. So I looked that one up. The skill mm -hmm. of scaffling, notice is your translation gives it a little better. It says it's, it's not a, it's the shield, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the shield, the skill of the scaffling, this is not just a regular shield. It's the protection of the people of this family, this lineage of the Skeflings are like a people. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it'd be like kind of, you know, um, uh, a nation of some kind. And he's yeah. basically saying, you know, this Denmark was protected by this great king. Right, right. And there, there's a kind of a footnote here. It says, The Danes have legends about their warrior kings. Mm -hmm. The most famous was Shield Sheafson, who founded the ruling house. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Shield Sheafson, yeah. Shield, yeah. It, 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 the word becomes protector. That's what it mm -hmm. translates into. Uh, just like yeah. uh, Caesar becomes king, right? The word uh -huh. Caesar turns to Kaiser and to Tsar. Um, after a certain period of time, people just adopt it as a as a feeling. So in di different translations, they either just name the guy, or they they translate his name into the meaning depending on um, what level they're aiming for. But yeah. the the language is just amazing, and it is it is epic language, right? It is yeah. it's amazing, and one of the things that you 
you know, everybody's reading right now. I think you're even reading it. The Hobbit, right? Yeah. The Hobbit yeah. is is kind of like uh, <laughs> Beowulf told to children, right? Instead of having all these horrible, you know, you know, rapine warriors, you've got all these cute dwarves. <laughs> They're over for a party, naming a mess. He's not cute. <laughs> yeah. And then they go off it's going to be interesting to see how that movie comes out because you're exactly right. It's a, it's a kid's book. It's fun. It's and, totally uh, fun. It's if they, great for kids. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. And if they try to tell it like he told Lord of the Rings. Um, well, that Lord of, Lord of the Rings is even sort of a cutened version of Beowulf in, in a certain sense. Yeah, and then there are a lot of similarities, you know, in oh, Beowulf that, uh, it, you know, in the movie Beowulf, it, it, that's, there was that's uh, the real father of, of the Lord of the Rings. Of Gollum, yeah. Oh, he's Beowulf. Uh, Gollum is, yeah. is, uh, like, uh, Grendel. Well, also, if you think about the way the movie version did, um, Grendel does live in that cave underneath, right? With all his treasures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it's clearly influenced Tolkien. Right, that's what he was yeah, all about. Yeah. In story-wise, he—if you want to know where the Lord of the Rings, it's actually mentioned. There's all lots of Lords of the Rings in Beowulf, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they're talking about rings all the time and magic yeah. swords. But they're yeah, and I'm you know I assume they're giving out the rings that you put on your arms and things like that. And those are those are how yeah. you keep track of your loyalty, right? Right, right. He's given that guy a ring, he owes you his ro- loyalty. All these things get yeah. get power from you. You. You get their uh, their loyalty, yeah. But it goes beyond just the um, you know the 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 rings themselves. There's also the all the magic items. You know, all every sword, you know, it has a history and a power, and it's even you know Beowulf's sort of the exception in that it, yeah he his swords don't work that well. He always breaks them. Yeah, um, that no, was the swords don't line. break, but he breaks them. Yeah, uh, because he's he's so tough. And when he goes to fight the uh, the dragon, uh, the same is true there. Right, and yet yeah. they're not Beowulf's ancient iron gray sword let him down in the fight, right. and that was uh, that was what I read just a minute ago. Um, yeah, yeah. When he wielded a sword, no matter how bloodied and hard edged the blade, his hand was too strong. The stroke he dealt. I have heard would ruin it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know yep. the um, the other nice thing about the the 2007 movie version is there's mm-hmm. a parallel um, going on in the beginning of the story. Uh, Grendel has his arm taken, his arm yeah. and his socket. Right? It's not just the it's not just you know the lower half. It's it's the entire mm-hmm. arm and the socket from which. Uh, it was pulled, right? Uh-huh. And later on in the movie, um, they have uh, Beowulf fighting his own son, who is the dragon, right? Yeah. And he has to cut off his own arm to kill it. Right, yeah. Because he can't reach. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, that parallel... Um, explanation, the parallel visualization, um, that's where movies can do something that, uh, you know, the visual uh, metaphors, the visual paralleling is is really, that's where movies can excel. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, 
I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I think The Hobbit will not be a good movie, just because the 13 dwarfs was never a good idea for... <laughs> and <laughs> you've got 13... Exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, they made quite, uh, quite a big effort in the one still shot I've seen to distinguish the dwarfs from each other by giving them all different beards. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, you got a bunch of Viking warriors. They all have beards. beards. But uh, notice in this story, we don't have dozens and dozens of named Viking warriors who have on-screen action. There's lots of named people, but there's not that many who actually uh, get speaking parts and do a lot of action. And that's because that's not what... It, the story shouldn't be focused there. Um, so I think this book is totally worth reading, uh, but if you're not 100% sure you know, you're up for it, which I say, you know, I can understand that. It's really, it's heavy going. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to get into. It took me two or three days of trying to push through and reading it on paper. And then, and then I got, so I was, you know, in a sort of a good, a good pattern. It's hard going because it is so full of old references, but yeah. the movie makes it very accessible. And so in, I think watch the movie first, then read the story. You'll hmm. follow it easier. Just like the way you, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You you read it first and then you go watch it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, interesting. So yeah, one, one thing um, I wanted to make sure we talked about. Um, I, I see this in a light now of maybe a person outside the society writing about that society and commenting on it. Mm-hmm. Um, near the end, Beowulf has died, and because he's died. Um, they're concerned now that they're going to get attacked by their enemies because, you know, if Beowulf isn't there, now there's their opportunity to win. Mm. And a guy says, often when one man follows his own will, many are hurt. This happened to us. Nothing we advised could ever convince the prince we loved, our land's guardian, not to vex the custodian of the gold. Let him lie where he was long accustomed. Lurk there under earth until the end of the world. He held to his high destiny. So it's a criticism. I read that as a criticism of Beowulf. Yeah. Saying if he had just left that alone, we'd be safe. But yet again, it's an acceptance by the guy who's saying the sentence that, hey, Beowulf I, held to his high destiny, and, and now you know things are going to suck for us, but that's just how it is. One, one, of, the, <laughs> one of the things that... Um, when I was reading about this book uh, in the commentaries in the uh, Chickering translation, translation with it, it actually has the old English side by side with the the translation, and then the whole back half of the book is backgrounds and uh, commentary line reading. It's basically like a Talmud of uh, mm. Beowulf. It's it's, right. it's a quite a thick book, even though you know the original text is quite small. Um, yeah. And and basically, uh, there's a, uh, an interesting idea saying that the author of Beowulf, whoever it is, was trying to have it every way he could. Uh, he was trying to say, this is bad, and it's also awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> killing is terrible. But, yeah. look at this action! Right? But, um, you know, you, you say that it... This, and yet, well, he's doing that. Right, right. Look at how epic that was. Uh-huh. Um, and good... 
epic poetry that I've read that they always do that. They always have it every way they can. Right? They they try and teach they they teach a lesson uh you know to the people who are reading it. Here's what you strive for, but also look at this guy. Isn't he even though he's he's uh failing in one way, he has these good features. It's it's not all it's 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 uh it's a big story and it allows a lot of different um you know, it's the way people get lost in arguing the Bible with other people. They just cite different passages and they bring their own interpretations to it. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's kind of what I thought of that passage was maybe it was a commentary on this way of life by someone who's not living that way of life. He says, isn't that, you know, this guy who did this of his own will affected everybody else negatively because he lost. Yeah, right? I, I, Maybe it's not the best thing to throw yourself into battle like this. And said by the guy who wrote it, who's, uh, as you said, uh, someone from England, yeah. who is not living that life. We, 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 we can't even say that much. We just assume that it's somebody from England because it was written in Anglo-Saxon. Um, yeah. It was found in England. But yeah, it's it, it's 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 much. I mean, Homer at least has a name, and uh, Homer's name is not. It's not like it's the name of a person that we know. Homer, I think, is like it means like poet or something like that. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, you know, we attribute this to Homer. Oh well, you've just forgotten what the word Homer means. <laughs> Anonymous is not a. a, a, a That's one of the fun things is it's capitalized, right? Uh-huh. It's always capitalized, but it shouldn't be because they don't know who it is. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. By some anonymous person. Yeah. 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 I, I'm a big fan of this book. I. I, I Me too. I. I. I it again. I'm so glad to have read it. It was uh, one of those things that that sits there, and you're like, oh, I sure would like to read that, and then I just never did, and. Um, yeah, but you know, watching the movie that that's excellent advice. I was about halfway through it when I watched the movie. And then um it brought a lot to light. I was like, "Oh, you know, and there's even a little uh 20-minute uh Neil Gaiman oh. slash uh, his co-author they they talked about Roger Avery. how they put it. Yeah, Richard is sorry. Sorry Roger they keep Avery. forgetting his name. <laughs> Roger Avery. <laughs> he, he's written good stuff. You, you yeah. don't just yeah. put all to Gaiman. So they they talked about it and um and it was funny how well not not funny I mean it was they got to a certain point in the story and they said and this is where we got to retell it you know and and Gaiman kind of said yeah you know this is a story that's been retold for you know I don't know you know thousands of years or whatever and it one of the neat things about it is that now we get to retell it mm-hmm. and he said that he had the idea of um, the dragon being Beowulf's son. And when that idea clicked into place, the whole thing laid right out for him. Mm-hmm. And they said, wow, this is really something. <laughs> so they wrote it. Well, I, I was I was thinking about why why it works so well, other than, you know, it, it is sort of the visual parallel, you know, from the beginning and the end. And, and uh-huh. in the way the movie ends with the, with the, I can't remember the name of that assistant dude. Um, Damn it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll find it here. 
Grant, Brendan Gleeson plays him. It's Wiglaf. Wiglaf. That's it. Wiglaf. Okay. Yep. Okay. So Wiglaf uh, becomes king, right? He, at the end of the movie, and uh, the sea monster is out at the sea. Um, no, sorry, not the sea monster. Uh, Grandpa's mom is out in the sea, and we don't know if he's going to throw the the token into the ocean and get rid of it like he like Beowulf said he would. Or mm-hmm. if he's going to, you know, go make another baby and get glory for himself. <laughs> right, um, right. But the, um, the, the beauty of the film is, is that because they've done that transition, they've explained why uh, Grendel's got a grudge, why um, the dragon comes and harasses, because these are supernatural creatures, right? They're symbolic, uh, at least for us, that's the way we would see them, is they're symbolic of something. Whereas mm-hmm. um, for them, they they—they they are, I still think they're symbolic. You know, like Arthurian legend, uh, St. George and the dragon, right? Those, those, there's no dragons in England, pretty sure. So playing <laughs> a dragon in England, I think you're just going out in the woods and going to say, <laughs> and then come back with a little <laughs> dirt on you and say, yep, it's a hard battle. <laughs> I think it's fake. So I'm assuming uh, we treat these stories as uh, externalization of horror within, right? Monsters within are externalized and saying monsters must defe- be defeated. Well, what is the big monster for men in a time like the, the Scandian lands is that they don't know for sure who their biological children are unless they, you know, lock up their wives. And these guys, they don't do that. Their women have some level of participation in the society. It's not like they make all the decisions. It's not a matriarchy. But they do have more of a uh, modern sense of being fully persons than down in those uh, Greek lands where the women are locked up and not allowed to go outside pretty much. Um, th- yeah. To find a, a woman outside in uh, ancient Athens or such would be shocking, right? Uh, yeah. There's very occasional stories of women who, you know, it's a handful, basically, you could say, of women we know the names of who are not goddesses um, in the Greek and uh, Romans, different, but the Greek stories. And Yet in those northern lands, they do have, uh, you know, women who they do make a little bit of decision. And when you're a king, you need an heir. I mean, that's we've had whole uh, uh, new religions started over the fact that a king needs an heir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, king yeah. Henry, etc. Um, those those uh, uh, bastard children are something that haunt men. In, in the sense that they can come back and make a claim for your, your position. And the women uh, might be upset by that. In the movie, uh, not Beowulf, eventually Beowulf's wife, but also um, uh, Robin's, Rothgar, yeah, yeah. Rothgar's wife, played by Robin mm-hmm. Wright Penn in the movie, she, she's you know, reluctant to bed with her husband because he's sinned with another, right? Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. Well, someone specific, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, somebody very specific. Um, uh-huh. 
I, I think that you know who he sinned with was her problem. But notice, uh, notice yeah. that the sins of the father. Uh, it's a very Christian sort of, uh, or not? It's a biblical sin, right? The original sin. I guess that's a Christian thing, um, uh-huh. where you've got uh, the people, just like the family of Cain, right? Uh, which you know, if if Cain had children, Cain's children are um, are sinners because of their father being a sinner, a murderer. Cain killing Abel. We don't even know why Cain killed Abel in the Bible, right? Yeah, well, yeah, an original sin is the actions of Adam. Right. So, but it's yeah. the same thing, right? Adam's son mm-hmm. kills his yeah. Abel. Why did he kill mm-hmm. Abel? We don't know. But in the story of Grendel and Beowulf, or Beowulf Grendel, uh, Beowulf kills Grendel because Grendel is uh, a sign of the sin of Hrothgar. But in doing so in the movie, I mean, it's, it's, that's what's so great about it, is it captures the reasons hidden within the story. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is kind of remarkable. You know, the more I think about it, it is kind of neat, you know, because it does fit. It's, you can read that story, and it doesn't contradict that movie. No, absolutely not. In fact, yeah. what I would say is, you know, it's it's a compliment to the to the book, and I mean, it's very hard to hard to say, you know, this was an improvement over that when it's a great thing. This epic mm-hmm. poem is very hard going if you're just down and trying. You can't read old English; it's impossible. But yeah. if you sit down and you read the, a translation of it. Um, and you work through it, you can you can gain a lot of insight to what's going on in the story. Appreciate the language is beauty, beautiful. Uh, the images are beautiful. The the sound of the words themselves are beautiful. Um, but to fully appreciate the the story, this is this is like two dudes, Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery, who sat down and read the book and said, "This is an awesome story. Let's make it visual." And they, I think they did. And that mm-hmm. uh, Robert Zemeckis had something to do with it too. Uh, I'm I'm less sure of his involvement because he. Did. <laughs> yeah, and that in that commentary thing that I watched, he was on there saying that he would never read the poem or he really disliked it. <laughs> um, well, you know, I don't know. That's not exactly what he said, but he he said that he hated the poem. He didn't like to read the poem. It's t- but this story he really liked. Oh yeah, um, the what, the script. It's very strange. If you if you do a search on the Wikipedia entry for Beowulf, you will mm-hmm. find um, that there's about a million adaptations of it. Uh, there's a few film versions, uh, mostly around the time of this one, the 2007 version. But every time they adapt it. Um, and there's actually a current adaptation in uh, one of the new uh, DC comics. Uh-huh. Every time they adapt it, they they always improve it by setting it in the future. And I'm like, why? <laughs> the future? Because I guess it's much easier to understand. You don't have to have all this background. It's very simplistic, and they're aiming for uh, sort of a, a young audience, I think. But it's... It's uh, it's nice to see it not set in the future because there there there's a there's a one with Christopher Lambert set in the future. It's got oh yeah. Uh, I I don't know that I've ever seen that movie, but I recall 
considering. Yeah. Yeah. Are on it. But huh. um, there, there's uh, also, and this is very intriguing to me, um, a, uh, a Neil Gaiman story based on this. Uh, it's called The Monarch of the Glen. It's a novella published huh. in Fragile Things and okay. includes modernized Beowulf characters, um, which might be uh, interesting uh, at least to read because Neil Gaiman's a really good writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also a um, a novel called John. Uh, it's called Grendel uh, uh, by John Gardner from 1921. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've heard of that one. It tells the story from Grendel's point of view, which I think might be interesting as well. And of course, Eaters of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eaters of the Dead is definitely something I'm going to get. Um, I think there's probably a good audio version of it. Didn't you review that? Uh, uh, it might have been a... I've read it. I, I don't remember if I reviewed it, but it was years and years ago. Uh-huh. The, the Let me see. If, yeah, the, I, I really like 13th Warrior. I thought it was great. I'm not a I'm not, uh, fan of everything Crichton did, but uh-huh. um, that's a good book. Um, and... Um, He's written a bunch of yeah. ones. By the way, there's yeah. also the, the Larry Niven, Steve Barnes, Jerry Purnell series called the Herat series. Oh, uh-huh. Um, but uh, reviews on that are not awesome. So uh, It's set okay. on the planet, uh, and the planet, I guess, is named uh, Herat. Gotcha. Okay. Epic. Fascinating. Yeah, epic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Shoot, I don't see an audio version of that on Audible anywhere. Anyway. Hey, um, uh, have you seen Sons of Anarchy? No, I haven't. Um, uh, I like I like that I I like that show quite a lot. Um. Oh, okay. Uh, I've seen ads for it, so I know what it is, but I haven't seen it. A biker gang show, uh, basically. Yeah. Hell's. Yeah. They're not called Hell's Angels. There, but um, it was a really promising show right from the beginning because I realized in the very first episode uh, they were retelling Hamlet um, huh. uh, with the father marrying, uh, sorry, the uncle marrying the father, uh, the mother after killing the father, and Hamlet uh, coming to realize that this is the case and then uh, wanting to confront that and bring it out and yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just a starting point, but um, it's got a lot of good actors in it, and uh, it's 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 interesting because it is sort of a modern a Viking culture, uh, but it's done as a crime story. Right? Uh, huh. mm-hmm. It's not like watching The Godfather, where you know it's all about family and uh, I don't know pasta or whatever. <laughs> um, this is about guys who. Uh, drink too much, smoke a lot of dope, uh, run guns, and uh, uh, yeah. uh, like you said, drink a lot of mead. Yeah, basically, hang out, tell stories, and and they spend <laughs> a lot of time in the mead hall. Right? I mean, right. that's a, it's incredible how full of drinking uh, this whole. I mean, I guess it's northern lands. You you got you got to be in inside during the winter. Um, you got a fire going. You got singing and dancing. Uh, and uh, lots of drinking, and those happen in the mead hall. But even well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day. <laughs> it's very first. It snowed outside last night, and and it's nice. Oh, even the yeah. very first lines, right? The the skildings 
uh, a health stain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the the mead benches were overturned. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Wild party! Wild party! <laughs> oh, I love it. Nothing, nothing well. you can do then. Not <laughs> benches. It's terrible. Yeah. Right. So thank you very much. You. I mean, th- this was really excellent. I enjoyed this a lot. I, I, I have a feeling we could have uh, done it over a three-part podcast and still... Yeah, yeah, definitely possible. I'm glad you yeah. nailed, nailed, one in, nailed one in one. <laughs> you bet, you bet. Well, that was neat. It's called Nailer. Mailer? Yeah, that's the one, the other thing that is, you know, all the swords have names. Oh, yeah, uh, hunting, yeah. And there's a uh, the later one he uses against um, against uh, the dragon. I think is is a, is called Nailer. It's the translation. Uh, it breaks mm-hmm. too. Yeah, they all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it let him down. It let him down. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.